Douglas Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Season 1, Epilogue. Well, after 17 episodes and 7.5 hours of recorded material, we've made it to the end of Season 1 of Endless Summers. At the end of each season, I'm going to take the opportunity to reflect on what's happened in the previous season, as well as name my best teams from this portion of Australian cricket history. Uh, so this is going to be a little bit more freeform than my regular uh, scripted scripted shows. So it's not going to be as polished if you know if you consider what I actually do polished. But we'll we'll get through this. So I guess the first thing to talk about is why I started this podcast, and I think the first comes down to just that that love of cricket that I'm sure everyone who listens to this show show has. Uh, we can all think back to the first matches that really. Crypto. So for me, uh, growing up in the 90s, my first test match that I ever record, uh, remember watching was the F- Ricky Ponting's debut against Sri Lanka in Perth. Uh, I mainly rec- uh, remember that first Slater's double hundred, but I think the fact that that was Ponting's first first ever test match, that that made me a big fan of him and, and obviously following his career as a, you know, I, that was, I saw that as a 10-year-old and, and following his career to the end was a big part. And, you know, if maybe one day I'll get to uh, cover his career in Endless Summers, we'll see how we go. Um, but from there, you know, I've just, I went to my first test match the following season against the West Indies in Melbourne, 96, 97, uh, and just, you know, fell in love, started playing that season. And yeah, it's, it's just been something that's continued with me, uh, ever since. Uh, and also on that, so building on that is just looking into the history, the history in the background. So some of my, my presence related to cricket were cricket history books. And I just fell in love with going back and, and looking at what happened in the past and learning all, all about the great names and the key events in Australian cricket history. And I think, you know, that's the, that's the source of, of this, uh, of this podcast. Uh, there was a couple of really influential books. So I haven't been able to find it. And I can't remember, but there was an anthology book that uh, covered all the tests from uh, the start to the present day when it was released, which was the mid nineties. And it, it had all the scorecards and it had player profiles and it, it had news reports from that. And I've been looking for it because I want to have it as a reference source, but I, I can't find it. So I've been using some other sources there. And the other one is uh, Great Days in Test Cricket by uh, Rick Perry. It, it's one of the really ones that goes into details about those those really key moments and, and high tension uh, events in, in across all the Test Series history. So if you, you're looking for a good cricket history read, that's that's my recommendation there. Um, so I've been playing cricket on and off since the, the mid nineties, as, as I sort of suggested there. And, uh, it's only been because I've, uh, started having kids. So I've got two kids under three. Um, it's hard to justify, uh, going away for eight hours on a Saturday to, to play cricket and indulge it myself. So, uh, had to put that on the back burner, but I'm sure I'll, I'll get back into that. But, uh, this, this podcast help, uh, helps to tickle the cricket bug. So yeah, this will, this will keep me going until I can actually get back out there on the field. And so in terms of actually wanting to do a podcast, um, I've wanted to do a podcast for a while. I mean, I'm a a middle-aged white guy. Um, everyone wants to know what I'm thinking. So, you know, it was inevitable, inevitable. Um, and in terms of inspirations, what sort of, you know, styles and, and ideas, has gone into this. So obviously for cricket podcasts, you're looking at the great cricketer. Um, I'm nowhere near as funny as those guys, as you can tell by the lame attempts at jokes that I've tried putting in there. But they're probably the big one in terms of, you know, just going in depth is, is Jared Kimber. His work's outstanding. Uh, his work on Double Century and Reading Car, you know, I, I listen to that every every episode that comes out. So I can't recommend him enough. And I'm sure, again, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you, you've found Jared Kimber's work. So make sure you get onto that. Um, in terms of the format, uh, my first 
podcast, the first podcast I became really obsessed with was the history of Rome by Mike Duncan. And if any of you have listened to that, you can, you can see I'm really sort of aping his style, you know, in terms of going through the key events and, you know, making profiles of the, of the key people and making sure that that's clear. So, uh, that's the, that's the sort of style I'm going for with these shows. So when I, when I started this, it was my only, only focus and only podcast. And I was meaning, meaning to stick to that every once in every two week schedule, which it seemed to happen for the first uh, dozen episodes or so. Uh, but then, you know, school, school um, I'm a teacher, so school sort of started kicking in. And then I was asked to do a uh, Essendon football club podcast with a, with a friend. Um, and that took off, that took off quite um more than I was expecting. It's it's called Don the Stat. Um, that's actually becoming uh, reasonably successful, at least what by what I thought it would be. And so I've ended up focusing a bit more of my time onto that, as I, as especially in the middle of the football season. And I've been able to come back to endless summers uh, after the football season for Essendon has ended. I managed to finish off that season one. So whatever happens from here, at least I can say I finished one season of the show. Uh, my plan is to keep keep putting out episodes. Uh, I don't know if I can have a regular schedule at this stage, but I'll, I'll keep plugging away. I do want to get some pre-work done on season two and, and maybe write four or five episodes before I start recording, just so I've got a bit of a buffer uh, that I can, you know, put out episodes with a reasonable distance. And so I'm guessing hoping to start season two sometime in the new year. The other thing to think about is why did I end at this point? I think if you listen to that, that previous episode, it, it's it should become clear that 1894-95 is the the last season of Jack Blackham, and he was the, he was the last player still active that was had played in that first test. Uh, and so I thought that was a pretty obvious place to to take a break and, and look at what happens over the end of the previous years. So in terms of just what what came out of the the first years of Test cricket, you know you're establishing a whole heap of things. So obviously moving from four balls to to six ball overs is a big thing. That's become standard, particularly in Australia, by the end of the period that we've covered. Um, the beginning of the faster bowlers, uh, particularly towards the end. So we, England obviously had Tom Richardson. That was that was a key thing. And, you know, Spotheth and, and Turner are often described as, as medium, medium fast bowlers and the like. But it's, you know, Richardson is a step above. And then, you know, we, we got a glimpse in that last episode of Ernie Jones for Australia, who's going to be one of those players. And, and we're going to start to see more of a, an emphasis on, on pace there. Um, throughout the next period. Uh, the other thing is look at is the more centralised control of cricket. It was, almost, it was a pretty Wild West experience, particularly if you look at the tours, you know, a lot of them were organised by the players and uh, it was trying to, you know, mainly about profit and, and the like, and it, there wasn't a clear guide as to how to do it. And you sort of see towards the end as some of these some of these tours start to fail or cause issues. And you, obviously the, the big moment is... Uh, 1887, 88 with the, uh, the two England tours to Australia, you know, that, that schmozzle there really sort of made that move to centralization necessary in order to keep the game alive. You know, the, the crowds had diminished substantially by that stage and in Australia, you know, it's four years between tours there and it's really Grace's tour that really starts that renaissance in terms of Australian cricket being well supported. I guess the other thing across this period is the professionalization of the game. Uh, you know, Australia doesn't necessarily have, you know, as, as big a distinction between amateur and professional. Uh, but I guess in terms of pre- professionalization, you know, better pay for the, for the players and, and around that centralized control. And obviously right at the end of the, of the season, we, we saw the establishment of the county championship in England and the Sheffield Shield in Australia to provide that structure for, for first class play. So I guess what surprised me at most going back, so I, I was aware of pretty much all of this stuff prior to going back in depth, uh, like just more the general 
gist of, of what was happening at the time and, and, you know, the big players and the like, but just going back, you know, you don't really recognize it as a kid, but the focus on money and, you know, the, the, how the game was basically built as a money-making exercise. And, you know, if you, you went even deeper, you'd, you'd find out about the gambling and all the, and the match fixing that, that was going on. So I guess, you know, as a younger person, you have a lot more innocent view of things. And so coming back to that as an adult really changed this perspective. And other things, other things that stood out was, you know, the two players that have really stuck with me in my, my initial go through as a, as a teenager of this period was uh, players like Harry Ball, Harry Boyle and George Bonner. And, you know, they, those players stuck with me and thought, oh, they, they must have been really good. And so going back and looking at detail, I was really surprised that they had not been as good as I thought. So Harry Boyle really outside of the match against the MCC on the 1878 tour really doesn't do much for Australia. Um, and I was surprised at how much of a backroom figure he was. And then and George Bonner, you know, he gets talked about a lot. If you read a lot of the reports, cause he was just such a larger than life character, you know, figuratively and literally, but you know, other, other than, you know, one great century his, his test record is pretty bad. And you know, his last 10 innings, he doesn't get into double figures. So you know, again, one of those players that has a larger reputation than they would deserve based on their record. After going through it, then the favorite players that have really stood out. So Joey Palmer, I think he's really underrated. You know, as I said, Harry Boyle sorts of stand out as the partner to Spotheth um, in that early period. But I think it's it's really Joey Palmer that, that stands out. And there are times when Spotheth is absent or underperforming and it's Palmer that, that stands up. And I don't think he quite gets the, the kudos he deserves. You know, and he's not seen as the, the partner to Spotheth that, you know, Turner and Ferris are seen, are seen as partners, even though Turner plays more games without Ferris than he does with Ferris. So, you know, I think he's really underrated. Um, learning about Arthur Cunningham, uh, you know, obviously only plays one test. Uh, spoiler alert, because uh, the test he played in the last episode is the only one he'll play. But, you know, just reading about his antics and even going further, there's a lot of other stuff that I didn't cover on the pod and I might do you know, a special supplemental about the life of Arthur Cunningham at some stage. But he has he has a crazy life and, and what he does and even, you know, what happens to his, what his son does, um, you know, is, is pretty pretty out there. So in terms of the English, uh, Billy Barnes was someone I enjoyed coming back to. And obviously he was a really popular uh, tourist um, who was, was out on a lot of those early tours to Australia. And then George Lohman, uh, just his, his exploits and seeing, you know, the damage that he, he caused, you know, he wasn't as, as fast as Richardson would end up being, but he was a real game changer for the English when he came onto the scene. So what we will look at now then is the best team across the period. So going on a stats guru and setting the, the time period uh, of season one, uh, I've worked out who I consider to be my best team for Australia and then my best team for the opponents. So for Australia opening, we have the Bannerman brothers. So Charles Bannerman only played three matches, but I think given his impact on that first test, uh, you can't go past him. So he three matches, 239 runs at an average of 59.75 with one century, which was that 165 not out that he scored in the very first innings of test cricket. So I thought you just had to have him in there. Uh, his brother Alec, uh, 28 matches, 1,108 runs, the first two over 1,000 runs for Australia in that time. Uh, average 23.08, no centuries, 850s, and a lot of really annoyed bowlers with how long he, he batted the, the crease there. So his high score was 94. Then as captain, you can't go past Billy Murdoch. You know, he, he really dominated those those early series once he once he took over. 
captain the Ashes winning test and, you know, was a huge figure in Australian cricket. So 18 matches, 896 runs, average of 32 with two centuries and 150, a high score of 211. He also did play a match for England in 1892. At number four, Percy McDonnell. Uh, again, I think one of the players that probably is a little bit underrated and, and under, understated. He's, he scored in this period... He, no Australian player scored more centuries than he did. Uh, so he went 19 matches at 955 runs with an average of 28.93, three centuries, two fifties, and a high score of 147. This next part was probably the hardest to fill. I could have picked a lot of players for the fifth batting slot. I think this is probably the least obvious pick of the lot, but I went with uh, JJ Lyons. Uh, I just think his impact, um, obviously, probably would be better suited to opening the batting with Alec Bannerman, but you you know, you have to have the Bannerman brothers as the openers here. So he played 13 matches, 703 runs, often at a quite quick strike rate, uh, average 28.12 with one century, three fifties and a high score of 134. Then number six, you know, for the all rounder slot, there's, there's only one choice and that's George Giffen, uh, outstanding player, probably missed out on five or six test matches because of disputes with um, the board and, Disputes over money and disputes about getting his brother to play. Um, but, you know, his record is outstanding. He's, he's the first great all-rounder, at least for Australia. So in his 28 matches in this period, he scored 1,119 runs, uh, average 23.8 with one century and 550s, high score of 161. And during that time, he also took 94 wickets at 26.65, seven five-wicket innings and one 10-wicket match with the best bowling of seven for 117 Again, really obvious choice for the number seven slot with the wicketkeeper, Jack Blackham, the man who sort of bookends these this uh, season of endless summers. Uh, so across his 35 matches, he scored 800 runs, an average of 15.68 with 450s, high score of 74. And he took 37 catches and 24 stumpings. It was the first great wicketkeeper. Then, as I said, one of my favorite players from this period, Joey Palmer, managed 17 matches before his knee injury ended his career a bit prematurely. Uh, scored 296 runs at an average of 14.09 with a high score of 48. Was often used up the order. I think his teammates rated his batting. And then he took 78 wickets at 21.51 with six five-wicket innings, two 10-wicket matches, and a best bowling of 7 for 65. Then you have this, probably the three obvious picks in Spotheth with 18 matches, 94 wickets at 18.41, seven five-wicket innings, four 10-wicket matches with the best bowling of seven for 44. Obviously, was the key behind the creation of the Ashes. And, you know, without that effort, is is Test cricket what it is today? You know, I think that there's a good question. There's a question that whether or not it may have been something that, that just died away. So... A lot is owed to Fred Spotheth, uh, the demon. Moving on to the terror, we have Charles Turner with 17 matches, 101 wickets. Again, the first Australian to take 100 wickets. That's 16.53. 11 five-wicket innings, two 10-wicket matches, and the best bowling of 7 for 43. And rounding out the 11 with his partner in crime, uh, JJ Ferris, the fiend. Uh, eight matches, 48 wickets at 14.25. Four five-wicket innings with the best bowling of 5 for 26. He also, if you look at his record, he, he did actually play nine test matches overall because he also played in that same test match that for England that Billy Murdoch did. And he took 13 wickets in that match. So that actually, you know, his record is pretty good already. He had those wickets to it. And it's an outstanding record. So the people who are unlucky to miss out, uh, Harry Trott, probably unlucky top Scott Sid Gregory probably came along a bit too late to get into it. And in terms of his batting only really bats well in that last series, uh, Harry Boyle, uh, slight 
slight missed out there. And then probably Tom Garrett was one of those ones who was a, a constant across the period for, for most of it, but just didn't really have the outstanding results that would get him into that side. So let's moving on to the opponents. And what you'll, what you'll see from here is that the the real difference between the two teams during this period is the batting, the averages of the English batsmen, particularly uh, the top three or four, um, if sort of five, six runs higher than their Australian counterparts. And so that's probably the difference in why England dominates this uh, portion of test cricket. So you, you can't go past WG Grace, uh, who'd also be captaining the side. Uh, he played 18 matches, scored 950 runs at 36.53 with 200s and 450s, so a high score of 170, uh, you know, Absolute titanic figure, you know, first choice for any English 11 anytime he was available. Opening with a good doctor is Arthur Shrewsbury. You know, again, one of those constant fixtures inside. Brought a lot of teams out to Australia and was captain during those times. He played 23 matches, uh, scored 1,277 runs at an average of 35.47. 300s, 450s with a highest score of 164. He's my pick for the best bat of the this era, just his consistency did it in both England and Australia, which, you know, Grace mainly played in England. So I think you just have to tip. He gets the slight edge over Grace in terms of a test cricketer over that time. Number three, Stoddart, uh, 12 matches, 812 runs, an average of 38.66, which is the highest of any player picked in this uh, in these two sides. Uh, 200s, 350s with a high score of 173 and, and was captain on that winning tour that ended our season one. Then you have another player from the first ever test match, George Elliott, who ended up being the, the last survivor for England uh, from that match. Uh, the first of the all-rounders, again, another thing that stands out for the English here is that they've got a lot of good all-round options. So Elliott, 23 matches, 901 runs, and an average of 25.02, scored 1750s and a high score of 149, whilst also taking 48 wickets at 20.6, one five-wicket innings, which was seven for 36, which was his best bowling. Next, we have Alan Steele. 13 matches, 600 runs, an average of 35.2 with 200s and a high score of 148, whilst also taking 29 wickets at 20.86 with a best bowling of 3 for 27. He's one of those players, like if you put Steele's probably, you know, fourth or fifth batting option in this side, but if you put him in the Australian side, he'd, he'd probably be number one. So again, it shows the depth of the, the English batting at this stage. Uh, Billy Barnes is next. As I said, one of my favorite players from this era, just a constant, uh, constant threat either with the bat or the ball. 21 matches, 725 runs, an average of 23.38 with 105.50s, high score of 134, whilst also taking 51 wickets at 15.54, three five wicket innings with a best bowling of 6 for 28. Then we move into another constant set of threats for the Australians with the two spinning all-rounders. So first up is Johnny Briggs. Uh, 24 matches, 647 runs, an average of 18.5 with 102.50s, high score of 121, whilst also taking 82 wickets at 16.25, 75 wicket innings and three 10 wicket matches with a best bowling of 6 of 45. With his partner in crime, Bobby Peel, 19 matches, 427 runs at 15.81 with 350s, high score of 83, whilst also taking 93 wickets at 17.87, four five wicket innings and one 10 wicket match with a best bowling of 731. So constant threats there from the English with their spinners. Then you have the great George Lohman uh, in this period, 14 matches, 202 runs, an average of 10.6 with 150 and a high score of 62, whilst also taking 74 wickets and a fantastic average of 12.83, five five-wicket innings, three 10-wicket matches, and a best bowling of eight for 35. The next 
position is probably the hardest to pick in the side. It's the wicket keeper. There's no, unlike Australia with Black, and there's no real standout wicket keepers. I've ended up going with Greg McGregor um, just because of his description as, as the only English wicket keeper to challenge Blackham in terms of keeping keeping skill. Uh, eight matches, 96 runs at 12 with a high score of 31 and 14 catches and three somethings. He's mainly being picked off reputation. As I said, there's no real outstanding English wicket keeper. They like to, they like to chop and change their, their keeping position there. And finally, and with Tom Richardson, only really came into it in the last couple of matches, but I think he just did enough to get into this side. He had played six matches with 42 wickets at 23.92, uh, six five-wicket innings and one 10-wicket match with a best bowling of six for 104. It's just that that constant wicket-taking threat, you know, six five-wicket innings in six matches, I think gets him in ahead of a couple of others. The unlucky players for England, uh, Billy Bates, uh, Dick Barlow, Will Scotton, uh, Walter Reid, uh, Abel and Stanley Jackson, who, you know, only played a couple of tests. So even though he had outstanding results, didn't quite play enough to get into this side. So there you have it. They're the two sides. Uh, I think if you went those two sides head to head, I think the English side probably wins at the very least seven out of every 10 matches played, maybe even eight. Just that batting depth uh, is probably going to be enough. So, but with the bowlers on each side, you know, the Australian bowlers are probably going to be enough to, to win a few games there. But I just think the English batting overall is just that much stronger that they would be more successful. So I guess my final thoughts, I've really enjoyed going through this first season. Um, it's not about the numbers of downloads. I'm not trying to make money out of this. I just want to be able to look back once I finish and be able to say that I did it and I'm proud of what I've put together, which I am so far. Um, I would really like to get better at this. Uh, and if you've listened all the way through and you have some feedback, I would really appreciate any any feedback that you can give. Uh, this can be reviews on Apple or Spotify, um, or you can contact me directly at Endless Summers Pod. That's all one word. And I'll have that in the description at gmail.com or on Twitter at pod underscore endless. Uh, as I said, I'm only going to get better if I if I get feedback from people. And I would really appreciate it if, if people could give me some tips of how to improve the show. Um, Other than that, thanks for listening and I'll see you all for season two in 2023. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.